much that's entertaining and inspiring and will include a tribute to Martin Luther King. The Sunday evening concert sliding scale admission of $15 to $25 will benefit striking workers at Grace Honda. For information, Google Western Workers 2009 or call 650-724-9262 or ask at your own union local. And it is 3 o'clock. Next up is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. You're tuned to KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, and KSCF in Fresno and online at www.kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is a Tuesday, January 13th, 2009. Yes. In one week, we will have a new administration, and today we've been listening to Hillary Rodham Clinton, some of us have. Uh, I don't know why I feel uncomfortable watching uh, a woman being grilled by a table full of old silverbacks, old dudes. Um, I can't help remembering so many other women, and even Hillary, you remember... She got it going over back in the day there, white water, this and that. Every time I turned around, she was being hauled up to the hill, you know, answer to the man, to the judge. Oh, oh for those of us with theatrical uh, backgrounds, uh, yes, it recalls so many, so many uh, plays, so many dramas. I'm afraid uh, we have to call them witch hunts, right? Uh, oh, anyway, I suppose today's drama was, uh, had more equity. There's a phrase now, uh, the Obama campaign. They kept saying, no drama Obama. That, <laughs> that's the way they want to play it. Uh, let's just, you know, keep it real, keep it, uh, reasonable. Actually, uh, we all know that politics is theater, a part of it. Uh, I couldn't help but make one note for today. Uh, the note is the phrase, smart power. Smart power, smart power. Hmm. I guess that is opposed to stupid power? Anyway, for whatever it's worth, uh, <laughs> Yes, the new day. I I hope I hope I can hang on to the the romance. There was a little romance. I I'm carrying around the um, um, 
the book by Barack Obama, Dreams from My Father, a New York Times bestseller. It wasn't when it came out, of course, but he wrote it when he was 33 years old. And uh, it's, gosh, it, I don't know. I've got it up there on my shelf there. I've got it next to books, very strange books, things like um, Out of Africa by Isaac Dennison, you know. She talks about the Kikuyu peoples there in Kenya, right? And then it's uh, alongside um, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, Richard Wright's Black Boy. All these uh, uh, autobiographies and then stories uh, about East Africa, about... uh, Hawaii, actually, um, we've really got ourselves a, a Creole culture now. If you if you think about it, uh, lately, what I do is I just open up Obama's autobiography, and I'm always surprised. He spends a lot of time just uh, contemplating the lives of others, especially people he meets in Kenya and. All these members of his family who live such different, different lives. Uh, I recommend this book. I think that you could build a whole high school course around Barack Obama's dreams from my father. Of course, you'd have to get busy and go further and uh, talk about today's uh, political stories. Uh Oh, I was just working with one of our apprentices, and she said that she had met Obama back in Washington, D.C. He was there with the mayor of D.C., shook hands with everybody, and had chili in the restaurant with them. Uh, this week, I guess the president-elect can just smile and shake hands, and then next Tuesday, <laughs> things things can get real uh I think along with his autobiography, if I were lucky enough to be back in a classroom with high school kids and teaching history or social studies, I swear I would use the New Yorker as my text. I'm sure there are uh, political reasons why I shouldn't do that, but uh, the New Yorker, after years and years of objectivity, finally came out and endorsed Democrats a while back. Um, they uh, seem to understand that this was this was more more than a cultural war. This was a war for our survival. Uh, I'm particularly fond of Hertzberg, their um, uh, political writer, but David Remnick, the editor now editor of the New Yorker, uh, does a particularly good job. Especially lately, he's been writing up. Uh, I think they're editorials in Talk of the Town. Uh, this one, this one is capped by a wonderful cartoon, which I'm blowing up and putting on the wall down here at KPFA. It's a pair of, um, of predators, cats, I guess they're, I don't know, they look like tigers anyway, a couple of them. They're racing after some poor little rabbit who's skittering along. And they have claws out, and there they are. And uh, the caption on the cartoon says, The system's not perfect, but by God, it's transparent. <laughs> I think that that always reminds me of the great, I believe, Franklin Roosevelt line. Yes, uh, you know, sure, there 
SOBs, I, I think the word is sons of bitches or uh, something to that effect, yes. But there are sons of bitches, yes. Um, interesting way of looking at the world. Let me read you just a little snippet of what the editor of the New Yorker has to say in the talk of the town for January 12th, 2009. Yes, he writes comment. Homelands, slaves, men of West African origin, branded with Christian monikers like Tom, Peter, Ben, Harry, and Daniel, helped build the White House. Three of these men were on loan from its chief architect, James Hoban. Construction began in 1792. Slaves worked as sawyers, quarrymen, carpenters, stonemasons, brickmakers. Such was the fabric of the new republic. Twelve American presidents owned slaves, eight of them while in office. After emancipation and the Civil War, a handful of black men won seats in our Congress. But as the spirit of Jim Crow overwhelmed the promise of Reconstruction, white supremacy regained its hold, and on January 29, 1901, the last of those black congressmen, George H. White of North Carolina, stood in the well of the house. He prophesied the miracle of reconciliation and justice. Amazing. I'm interrupting uh, David Remnick here, looking at that date. January 1901, just the year before both my parents were born. Congressman George White of North Carolina. Here's what the last of those black congressmen of that time had to say. This, Mr. Chairman, is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, Phoenix-like, he will rise up someday and come again. These parting words are on behalf of an outraged heartbroken, bruised and bleeding, but God-fearing people. The only apology I have for the earnestness with which I have spoken is that I am pleading for the life, the liberty, the future happiness and manhood suffrage for one-eighth of the entire population of the United States. That's the end of uh, what George White had to say on January 20th, next Tuesday. An African-American family will take occupancy of the White House. The incoming president's father was Kenyon, his mother a Kansan. The future first lady's great-great-grandfather, Jim Robinson, worked as a slave on the Friendfield Plantation in Georgetown, South Carolina. He is thought to be buried there in an unmarked grave. The election of Barack Hussein Obama represents the culmination of the processes predicted 
by Representative George H. White. Forces that accelerated with the rise in 1955 of the Second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement. Let's see now. The Civil Rights Movement, 1955. That's another interesting date. That's the year I graduated from college here on the West Coast. That is the year of the election and the appointment of hundreds of African Americans to public office. This is a cause not for self-congratulation, but, well, for celebration nonetheless. Uh. <laughs> Here's what David Remnick has to say. There are many things that the inauguration of Barack Obama will not mean. Right, it will not mean the complete eradication of racial prejudice, the disappearance of injustices of history still made manifest in the everyday statistics of employment, education, and incarceration, but it can only instill in the American people a sense of possibility and progress. Barack Obama was not elected the 44th president based on the depth of his legislative achievements or on the length of his public service. John McCain, Hillary Clinton, they were the experienced candidates. Rather, Obama projected an inspiring message, a narrative of change, at a moment when so much in American life uh, is in such parlous condition I mean, God, the economy, the environment, national security, health care. For many voters, uh, political familiarity seemed less a source of solace than a form of despair. <laughs> Let's see, I have a footnote down here. When I was a schoolgirl, they taught us there was something in our culture called a master narrative. Master being an interesting word there, a uh, the master narrative was the story, myth if you like, the, um, what is it, the script that the society ran on. The master narrative, yes, usually some kind of heroic warrior story. Anyway, uh, the master narrative has obviously changed. It's not, <laughs> yes, the slave narrative is not quite the same thing, let's see. Uh, what? What uh, David Remnick believes or says in this article, Talk of the Town in the New Yorker, is that Obama embodied not just novelty and a broader American coalition, coalition uh, and everything we heard about his temperament as community organizer in Chicago, president of Harvard Law Review, as a legislator, as a campaigner, but it spoke of someone who in contrast to the outgoing faith-based president, possessed a gift for rational judgment and principled compromise. Elsewhere, uh, David Remnick has written that he believes that this, ed this uh, uh, curious, curious change uh, was brought about by Obama's use of language. I, I guess that... Uh, is the same thing, rational judgment, uh, principled compromise, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yes, smart power instead of a stupid power. 
Ah, Remnick goes on to say, now there remains only the occasion of Obama's inaugural address before he can put to the test his capacity to reconcile, reconcile forces and historical actors far beyond his experiences in Cambridge or Hyde Park or Capitol Hill and Oahu. It is as if the hydra-headed economic disaster and the heightened tension between nuclear Pakistan and nuclear India were not enough to quicken the pulse. The Bush era is ending, and the Obama era is opening. And yet another conflagration in the most intractable, faith-dazed, and history-inflamed spot on Earth. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, golly, yes. Um... That spot, that history-inflamed spot, God bless the Middle East, faith-dazed, I don't know if that's the right word, um, hard to say. I tried, I tried not to listen to the outgoing president's words. Um, I didn't just wince. <laughs> I, I put on the old song, there's an old song called, My Pharaoh, Honey. Yes, by Pharaoh, honey, the truth is that George was not a pharaoh. He was basically a phony, I guess, a um, puppet propped up by the forces, the reactionary forces of the time. Uh, his personal story, I, I leave to others. Uh, it's what Hannah Arendt said, you know, about the banal quality of evil, I... I noticed that the outgoing president mentioned that uh, he hadn't had a hard time in office. He had fun, you know, he enjoyed himself. Uh, I was curious, curious. Uh, less said the better, perhaps, God knows. Um, anyway, the uh, present conflagration, fire in the Middle East, uh, the end of an uneasy six-month truth, agents of Hamas... Um, Beginning, you know, they started firing the rockets, dozens of them a day, into the population centers of southern Israel, and then kaboom. Here's what the Palestinian journalist Daoud Kutab writes in the Washington Post. He says that the Hamas leadership had lost much of its support in Gaza and knew that the only way to regain it was to establish itself as the historic, the heroic, pardon me, the heroic resistor. Now, I leave it to you to figure out why they picked this particular moment in history to pull this uh, stunt, this caper. Oh, God, it's, what is that? Uh, turn on the radio and these great clots of blood coming out, uh, Rivers of blood everywhere. Uh, anyway, uh, David Remnick uh, goes on to say that in return, in return for the heroic resistance of Hamas, uh, the Israeli government, now in the run-up to a national election, unleashed its F-16s and helicopter gunships, as in so many instances in the past half-century, 
the Lebanon War of 1982, the Iron Fist response to the 1988 Intifada, Lebanon War 2006. The Israelis have reacted to intolerable acts of terror with a determination to inflict terrible pain, to teach the enemy a lesson. The civilian suffering and deaths are inevitable. The lessons are less so. Again, the footnote here. Dear old W.H. Auden, back in 1939. His great poem. Those to whom evil is done, do evil in return. This is the lesson that every school child learns. Uh, this morning we heard the Secretary of State to be Hillary Rodham Clinton opine that she hoped, that she expected, that the State Department could put a civilian face on our government rather than military face, you know, civilian face. That'll be the day, boys and girls, anyway, on June 4th of this past year, the day after Obama clinched enough delegates to win the Democratic Party's nomination for president, he spoke at a session of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee with the intention of assuring American Jews of his allegiances. Once more, he invoked his own story. He told of how, when he was 11, he first learned about Jewish traditions, history, and, quote, dreams of a homeland in the face of impossible odds, Here's Barack Obama on June 4th of last year. He said, the story made a powerful impression on me. He's speaking to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. The story made a powerful impression on me. I had grown up without a sense of roots. My father was black. He was from Kenya. He had left when I was two. My mother was white, she was from Kansas, and I'd moved with her to Indonesia, then back to Hawaii. In many ways, I didn't know where I came from. So I was drawn to the belief that you could sustain a spiritual, emotional, and cultural identity. And I understood the Zionist idea that there is always a homeland at the center of our story. <laughs> it's interesting, this is the article that begins with a description of our homeland in which the White House was built by uh, slaves. It began, let's see, the building began in 1792. Uh, John and Abigail were in, in residence there at the White House. Abigail was so distressed to see the slaves building the White House. Anyway, David Remnick goes on to say that as President Obama will have to address another dream of homeland, the unrealized dream of the Palestinians. In the West Bank, he will be dealing with a leadership that, while imperfect, 
supports the overdue justice of a two-state resolution. The same is true in Israel, at least with those politicians to the left of Benjamin Netanyahu. But in Gaza, Obama will be dealing directly or not with political actors who, with Iranian support, seek ceaseless battle with Israel and may even hope to destabilize Egypt. Okay, soon after George W. Bush came to office eight years ago, he told a confidant, quote, There's no Nobel Prize to be had in Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy. Bush turned his attention instead to places farther east in the Middle East with mostly horrific results, but as Obama told his listeners at the American-Israeli Public Affairs uh, Committee last June, there remains the Talmudic imperative of tikkun olam, that is, the obligation to repair the world. Okay. Yes, folks, we got an obligation to repair the world. The Jews' obligation to repair the world... Well, in four years or eight, uh, Obama may well have won no Nobel Medal and made no final repair. But the obligation of constant engagement is deep. The cost of negligence is paid in blood. And what is more, history has proved that the seemingly impossible can be achieved. The Irish and the English all but resolved a conflict that began in the days of Oliver Cromwell. Let's see, that would be the... Hmm. 16th century, 17th century, 1650s, middle of the uh, 1600s. As for, anyway, January 20th, next Tuesday, an African-American president will cross the color line. He will move into the White House, a house that slaves helped build. You will remember those of you who pay attention to these matters, that in 1902, more than a hundred years ago, the late great black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois said that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. I didn't say race. He said the color line. It's a much different story. We all now know that race is... Um, <laughs> uh, doesn't exist biologically. There is no such thing. But color, color line, this is uh, razor wire, uh, barbed wire, uh, still everywhere on the planet. As Bell Hooks tells us, most of the nations on this earth are addicted to white male supremacy. And if you don't think so, just... <laughs> Turn on the television. Turn on the television, folks, and you will see. I'm picking up my wonderful copy of Barack Obama's Dreams from My Father. And I'm looking, flashing through. I'm doing what I do with uh, the I Ching. I like to just flash through and point to a sentence and see. Uh, here's what it comes up. Yes, uh, Let's see, a friend says, so who's going to cheer you up? I shook my head. 
And he says, Barack says, you take some chances, but things are going to blow once in a while. <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful, yes. Uh, the white folks are seeing us act like a bunch of, oops, <laughs> the N-word, just like they expect. This is the most wonderful book. I just wish, I just wish I had a group of five school students. I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about Barack's mother-in-law, Marion Robinson, his wife's mother. She's the first grandmother in the White House, and she is, what is that, a symbol of family values returned to the White House, and she will be the person I need to reference. Uh, she and the granddaughters, uh, Sasha and Malia, these beautiful girls. I wish you a glorious week of celebration. Uh, let us hope that this, this new era uh, brings us as many gifts as it promises. This has been Jennifer Stone. I won't be on Thursday morning. There's uh, some hearings. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday to celebrate the inauguration of the first African-American president of these United States. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of finest female performers will kick off the ninth annual Women on the Way Festival presented by Footloose. The event is on Saturday, January 17th from 8 p.m. until